Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. We are in the third message now of this, uh, this series on coming home uh, in a familiar parable, uh, typically called the parable of the prodigal son. However, as we're going through it, we're finding very, uh, very quickly and over and over again that this is not just about the younger son. This is very much about uh, the, uh, the, the father, and even more so, uh, Jesus was meaning this to be targeted toward the Pharisees. And so we are in Luke chapter 15. I don't know how many more messages we're going to have. We're going to have at least one more in this. However, next week we're taking a break, and uh, Pastor Dave is going to be up here and bringing us a message. So uh, be preparing your heart uh, for that um, and uh, whatever the Lord is laying on his heart uh, from there. So we are in Luke chapter 15. We're only going to be covering the first half of the parable today, verses 11 through 23. You know, when I was in sixth grade, uh, my friend and I got the bright idea to skip a class. It was the first and only time that I have ever done it. Uh, we weren't clever by any means. We just decided to go hang out in the bathroom for an hour and not go to our creative writing class. However, it was uh, probably not much more than 10 minutes into uh, the next class. I remember it very, very well. It was computer class, but it was not 10 minutes into that that my friend and I were already doing that shameful walk to the principal's office. And I can recall... As I was sitting in the principal's office waiting to hear my fate, that my mom walks into the office to buy lunch tickets. It's God's providence, uh, obviously. But I was hoping that maybe she just was thinking that I was there to see the nurse. But obviously she found out fairly quickly. I don't remember what my consequence was at the school. I don't even remember meeting with my principal. But I remember is dreading when my dad would come home that afternoon. Not only was I embarrassed by my actions, but I was not looking forward to whatever consequence it was that was going to come my way. And when he came home, everything seemed normal. And of course, I'm not going to bring something like that up unless I'm prompted. And so he comes home, and, and in the afternoon, he sits downstairs in our basement, and I'm thinking, awesome, this is going to be sweet. And then he drops the question, how was school today? Now, the funny thing is, is I am, I'm, I'm sure he asked me that question hundreds of times. This is the only time I ever remember him asking me that question. And I couldn't just lie, so I, I spilled the beans and, and, and I told him what happened. He wasn't angry. He didn't ask questions. I think he sensed my, my guilt and my remorse and understood the, the punishment that sometimes guilt brings. Guilt is a good enough punishment. Then he stuck out his hand and wanted me to give him five. And I thought, well, that's awfully strange. So I gave him five and I walked away and went on my business. But it wasn't until later on that I understood 
what he was doing. In spite of all the stupid things that I did throughout the years, I could always come home. It didn't mean that there wasn't consequences. It didn't mean that there weren't boundaries that would be set. But at my house, I knew I was always going to be loved. And I knew I was always going to be accepted. Now, I understand that for some of us, um, you were not as fortunate as I was. For some of you, whenever you were at home, you felt like you were always walking on eggshells because you didn't know if the next thing you would say or even the next innocent thing that you would do, uh, what that would bring. But whether you're on the one end of that spectrum or the other for the home that you came from, our text this morning tells us that what Ever we have done, and that is in bold and italics, whatever, from the deepest, darkest thing that you've never uttered to another human being to those light things that maybe weren't as big of a deal as you make. Whatever it is that you have done, when we come home to the Father, God the Father, the table, there's always a place at the table for us, and there's always a room for us to stay. So today we're going to take this theme of coming home. And in the, the first week, we talked just in a general overarching principle of what the, this parable taught us. Last week, we looked at the necessity of repentance in our lives. And this week, we're going to look at co coming home to the Father and what it looks like to come home to God. So let's look in Luke chapter 15. We're going to be starting in verse 11, only going to verse 24. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but but I perish here with hunger. I'll arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
and they began to celebrate. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to see the magnificence of your grace this morning? Father, would you help us to understand what it means to be your child? And God, would we desire to be in your house, regardless of where we're coming from? And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. So there are, there are three things that we need to think about when coming home to the Father today. Uh, the first that we're going to look at is that we need to come home to God's compassion. We need to come home to God's compassion. You know, there's this text in Buddhism. It's a book. It's called the Lotus Sutra. And in the fourth chapter of the Lotus Sutra, there is a story that is very interestingly parallel to what we have in the New Testament of the prodigal son. It's about a a son who has a rich father. The father comes into money. The son uh, basically cons his dad out of of the money. And then he goes and he squanders it off and lives lavishly and, and sinfully. But the difference between the Lotus Sutra version and the Christian version is that when the son comes home to the father... The father wants the son to prove his repentance and prove his penitence. And so he, he puts him to forced labor for years and years until the father then decides that the son has, been, has worked off his sin or the son has actually uh, um, proven himself to be part of the family again. And though that's the Buddhist text... It's not much different than what we would expect in a story like the one of this particular parable. An ungrateful uh, son spends the family fortune. He goes off to, to who knows where, and, and who knows if he's actually sorry or not when he shows up. Is it just an act? Let's make him prove it. But Jesus' story tells us that he is intending that the Pharisees would be the audience who are listening to him. And in a Pharisaical mindset, it would be absolutely scandalous for a son to do this to a respectable Jew. And there's no respectable Jew in their mind who would let a son go out in the manner in which he did and then receive him back in full the way that he did, so unquestionably. And if we're honest with ourselves, we might think the same way that the Pharisees do. This child of yours cons you out of a lot of money. They go off to who knows where. They spend all their money on drugs, sex, booze, parties, uh, lavish clothes, whatever it is. And then they just march back home as if everything is going to be just fine. And you can understand a mindset of father or a parent saying that this kid thinks that they can just come in here and just waltz in here and well, they got something else coming. They, they might be able to rest for a couple days, but they need to get a job. They need to work. 
We need to keep up with the household and maybe go to therapy or rehab. Now, I'm not saying that some of these things aren't necessary sometimes. Sometimes they are. Sometimes we get into patterns that are hard to get out of even if we come home and we need help. But the father in this story is nothing like us. Yes, he was deeply hurt and maybe offended at his son's request and his departure. Yes, he was heartbroken by hearing through the rumor mill of what the son is doing and engaging in as he is far out. But yet, even in the midst of this, notice that the father is still on the porch waiting. He is first watching eagerly. He eagerly is waiting to initiate forgiveness and reconciliation. Notice second that he's also waiting and watching in pain. Every day that goes by is another day in which the son that he loved is out there destroying his life. Notice also that he's watching and waiting in anticipation. He's been praying that the son would come back and he's confident that one day God will do that. And when his son finally shows up, he goes from watching to humiliating himself. You see, there are all kinds of servants and there are uh, slaves and, and there are hired men that are working in, in his field and there's people of the community that would have seen how shameful it is that what this, this father is doing. Not only is he welcome, welcoming him back into his home, but he had to do a shameful thing for a Jewish man to do. Roll up his robe and tie it to his, his thighs and run to his son. One thing that we need to understand about forgiveness is that forgiveness is always at the expense of the person who was hurt. It is always at the expense of the one who was offended. If you are the one who is hurt, in order to truly forgive and offer reconciliation, it's going to cost you a bit. And it's you putting aside your right of retaliation. Putting aside your right at anger, even though anger can be, can be good and right sometimes. It's the same way with God. He offers you forgiveness. Not at your expense, but at his. It cost him very, very dearly. In Christ, he bore the shame and reproach of our sins and our failures. And in God the Father, the only way that he could open up the door to heaven is at the cost of his son's life. In order to forgive, 
the father had to wait and live in painful, quiet grief. I'm convinced that many of our relationships that are broken, and not that there's another, that there isn't another side to it, but a lot of times our relationships are broken because we are unwilling to do the hard work of waiting and giving over our desires and our wants. We would rather medicate the pain by writing that person off. I can't believe that guy hurt me so much. I don't want anything to do with him. Oh, that kid, I can't believe what that kid did. I never want to see that person ever again. Or perhaps we feel like we want to not get mad, but we want to get even. Or perhaps give someone the silent treatment or avoid them. God doesn't do that. God shows compassion on us. He opens the gates of forgiveness by the blood of his son and asks us to come home to forgiveness. And we get that by trusting in Christ Jesus our Lord. The road is paved for you in Christ's blood. And he's asking you to come home. So we need to come home to God's compassion, but also we need to come home to God's extravagance. We need to come home to God's extravagance. Not only does this father forgive 100%, but notice also the generosity by which he, he gives to his son. In verse 22, the father totally cuts off the son's prepared speech and gives him the best robe that he had. This robe uh, was a one-of-a-kind garment. The family would not have seen it very often. It only came out on very rare, very special occasions, usually for something like the, first, the, the wedding of the firstborn son. This was a very costly garment. And yet, when this boy shows up with messed up clothes and smelling like a hog farm... He puts on the most expensive robe his father gives him. Now he calls his servants then to bring a ring. This ring was most likely a signet ring. And back then they didn't sign contracts, they didn't take a quill and sign their name, but rather the family seal was put on a ring. And so when they're going to make a legal document, they would take wax and drip it on, on, a, on a paper, and then they would press the ring into the contract. And once that happened, it was a legally binding document. And here, by giving the son this ring, he is giving him the legal right to make financial decisions for the family. It's a pretty bold move for someone that just totally stole a bunch of money and squandered it all, isn't it? And he further calls his servants to bring sandals for his feet, which was a luxury back then. Not everyone had sandals. It was something that was costly. The servants working on the fields out in this man's 
uh, property, they probably weren't wearing shoes or sandals. So to see uh, their master uh, give sandals to the son who had returned is showing full inclusion back into the family. And further, notice that he calls for the slaughter of a fattened calf in verse 23. The calf would have only been about five months old. It was only bred and it was set apart only for very, very special occasions. Whereas at this time, even in the midst of a famine, most animals were not fed very well. This, this fattened calf here, within his five months, had been separated, had been well fed and well taken care of. It was for a very lavish celebration. A calf at this age probably weighed about 500 pounds, which would feed a lot of people. This is the biggest party that this father is ever going to throw. And he's throwing it for this son. And by the way, we'll get this, to this in a few weeks here. Notice that this entire production is at the expense of the older brother. Now, obviously, it doesn't turn out well for him. However, when we look at this in God's terms, every bit of our forgiveness, every bit of our reconciliation, every ounce of our full inclusion into the family of God is done so at the expense of Jesus. But he did it joyfully. He did it willingly. He willingly lost his life so that we could be found and included in God's family. And when we trust in Christ, the inheritance that is Jesus's is now also our inheritance. The robe that he gets from God the Father is now our robe. The ring that he gets from God the Father is now our ring. The shoes that he gets from God the Father are our shoes. And the feast that is put on is the feast of heaven welcoming us back home. All because of Jesus. So why not trust in him today? Third and finally, we should come home to full sonship. Come home to full sonship. There's a little juxtaposition here that you might not have noticed. That when the son goes to the father and is cut off immediately, in verse 21, he says to him, I am not worthy to be called your son. But when the father gets wind of this, notice what he says. This my son was dead and is alive. That is significant. To have sonship in the first century meant that you have all the legal rights of the family. Uh, it's different than today when the father says, this my son was dead. He meant that in its fullest terms. In uh, a Mideastern culture, even today to a certain extent, if you dishonored the father, you were disowned, you were cut off, and in Jewish times during this, if something like this would happen, 
it was not unheard of for a father to put on a funeral for the son that left. Even though his heart is very much beating and blood is very much going through his veins, in his mind, this son is dead. It's different than we think of today. But if you're considered a son, everything that is the father's is yours. You have full inclusion into the family fortune, the heritage, the legacy. There was no question as to the son's position when Jesus told this story. And I think we, we ought to see the richness of the biblical text here that I don't think it goes against our, our modern society's understanding of, of egalitarianism to say that we ought to call ourselves the sons of God. While it's okay to call ourselves sons and daughters, I think by calling us sons and daughters, we miss the rich biblical heritage that we see what's going on here. A, uh, a female in the early first century here was guaranteed no rights to property. That when her father was, was dead, she would get none of the inheritance. Her only hope was to marry into a family and take care of the property there with her husband and, and children. But then Jesus comes along dies for our sins. And then Paul says, therefore now there is no, uh, there's no male, no female, nor slave, nor free, nor Greek, nor barbarian. Uh, it, we're all one in Jesus Christ. And this is incredibly liberating to the women of that day because they had absolutely no inheritance. And now in Christ, they have the inheritance of God. We're all on equal footing in that. And that's great. I love what Tim Keller uh, once said, he said that women should no more squirm to be called a son of God than the men should squirm to be called a bride of Christ. <laughs> I like that. I think it fits. And here, this son was welcomed into full sonship. His dirty rags and his dirty body is covered with the father's robe. Now, to a crowd listening, this would have been scandalous. This, this was uh, the thing about this story is that it displays a watered-down version of God's extensive grace. You see, God doesn't just welcome back home an inconsiderate, disrespectful teenager like this son. He receives back adulterers and liars. He receives cheaters and thieves. He receives rapists and murderers. And one thing that I find really interesting in the unfolding of the, of the race issues that we've been working through in our culture is the church's response. Now, I, I, I want to say on the output that I am in full support and wholeheartedly believe in justice for George Floyd. What happened to him and many of our black brothers and sisters should never happen to anyone. And I do believe 
in criminal justice reform. Not radically, but there is some things that we need to look at as a culture. And the church has been very good at ringing that bell lately. That's good, and that is right. But in having my ear to the ground, in all of this throughout the, the, the church culture, what is one thing that I have not heard at all in light of this? No one has once said, at least I haven't heard it, that this cop who tortured and killed George Floyd can be forgiven and made new in Christ Jesus. That God's heart breaks for the death of George Floyd, but he also breaks over the condition of the heart of this officer that led him to do what it is that he did. When that event happened, the world said, get a rope. But God said, turn the porch light on. You see, God believes in social change. That's good and that's right. We ought to strive hard for a more just and equitable society. Micah 6, 8 tells us that. Jeremiah 9, 27 and 28 tells us that. They're clear. But we don't see much in the Bible about God throwing a party for social action, though we should. It says nothing about God uh, or, or, or Christ putting on a feast if we can have lower carbon emissions. Notice what, what Jesus said in Luke 15, just, just before this, this passage. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. So the gospel is meant for us as individuals to come home as individual sinners to become as sons. Social action's good. Again, we ought to work toward that. There's not going to be a party when we figure out a vaccine for COVID-19. Jesus is not going to bake a cake for us when we learn to live in harmony with each other. Why? Because he wants redeemed hearts. We ought to be careful to equate our action with the kingdom of God. Jesus said, notice what he didn't say. Jesus didn't say the kingdom of God is in your culture. What did he say? The kingdom of God is in you. And so as the kingdom of God, as individuals who have come home, we then act. And the kingdom of heaven only happens when you and I come home to receive sonship. You know, I never even thought about skipping class after that day in sixth grade. And sure, I did a lot of stupid things uh, <laughs> throughout my schooling. But there was always food on the table. There was always a bed waiting for me. And the door was unlocked. God is calling you home. God is calling you home to his compassion. God is calling you home 
to his extravagance. And God is calling you home to receive full sonship. Why not come home to him today? Let's pray. Father, um, it's not easy to come home. Um, it's not easy to see the ugliness of our hearts or the ugliness of our society. But Father, I pray that you would be redeeming us one person at a time to come to know you. I pray that if there's someone in this room or if there's someone even maybe watching today that knows that they've been running, that the porch light is on and Jesus is standing at the door with his arms spread open just as he did on a cross saying, come home. Come home, sinner. I'm waiting for you. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen.